Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. We're talking about all-time highs after the earnings report last evening. As the markets dive headfirst into artificial intelligence with no looking back here, apparently, the question is, is Washington already looking at this in the rearview mirror as a missed opportunity. We've seen the administration take swings at AI. We've seen attempts by the legislature to tackle AI. Remember they had everybody come on in, the big executives from Elon Musk to Mark Zuckerberg and so on. Yet there's no path here in a Congress that can't even figure out a way to fund the government. But I'll add this, news this week, a new swing at the ball. Bipartisan, as Speaker Mike Johnson and Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries announced together the creation of a 24-member bipartisan panel. This happened just two days ago, tasked with examining how Congress should respond to the rise of AI and its risks of misinformation, discrimination, copyright infringement, among other potential harms, some of which are already creeping into the campaign cycle, as we've talked about the deep fakes that could absolutely impact the outcome of the election. And that's where we start today with Greg Allen. He's the director of the Wadwani Center for AI and Advanced Technologies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, with a long career in this going back to the Pentagon and a unique sense of how the government is using AI right now. Greg, it's good to see you, and I appreciate your being with us. I'll get more specific with some questions about attempts to regulate this, but I guess broadly the question is, has Washington already missed the opportunity? No, I don't think that's the case. Uh, the United States government does not always jump quickly on every new topic, including every new regulatory topic. That's for sure. But I think there's been some genuine speed uh, in this area, and that's true both on uh, the congressional side and especially in the executive branch side. You know, the White House under the Biden administration passed an executive order on AI technology, and we're now, you know, past the 90-day mark, and every single federal agency, you know, met their deadlines for that 90-day period. Mm -hmm. And I think the House effort should be interpreted as the counterpart to what's going on in the Senate. And both of these are bipartisan initiatives, and both of them are aiming at coming up with comprehensive legislation sometime this year. You sound optimistic, uh, which is great to hear for such a fast moving technology and such a slow moving apparatus as Congress. As I mentioned, we can't even figure out uh, a funding mechanism right now, never mind helping our allies in Ukraine and Israel. What makes you think they can get this done? Well, getting it done when I think would be the critical question sure. in that regard. Um, something is almost certainly going to pass. And when that occurs and under what time frame? Uh, is a little bit unclear. It could happen this year, although as we get closer to the election, passing big pieces of law gets more difficult. 
It's also possible that it could pass during the lame duck period in between the election and the inauguration of the next Congress and the next president. Uh, some folks who will be retiring, you know, might be a little bit more open to bipartisan uh, legislation and passing stuff that might otherwise be politically difficult. So those are, you know, passages that could take place in the congressional action. On the federal agency action, you're already seeing some movement on these areas. You know, after a recent deep fake AI generated voice of President Biden that was falsely, you know, used during a robocall to discourage turnout yeah. in one of the recent presidential primaries, the Federal Communications Commission has already moved to ban uh, the use of AI generated voices in uh, electoral robocalls. So some of this stuff can move pretty quickly on a piecemeal basis. But on a broad basis, you know, going after all foundation models or the large sort of general purpose AI systems uh, exemplified by products such as ChatGPT, you know, of course, developing these regulations and developing them in the right way uh, is going to take some time. To what extent? The, go, go ahead. To what extent are we actually using it already as a government, Greg? You were at the Pentagon to see firsthand in the very early stages of adopting AI, but I know it can go way beyond that. Let's start there, though, with our Defense Department. Sure. Well, the Department of Defense's flagship AI adoption initiative originally uh, was something called Project Maven, and that was using AI for computer vision capabilities, essentially recognizing what's actually taking place and what's present in images and video. Well, that got started all the way back in 2017 and actually has a great deal uh, to show for its efforts. So those types of things in recognizing tanks in satellite images or recognizing you know, aircraft in drone images, that type of technology is, is relatively mature at yeah. this point for certain types of use cases. For the other types of AI systems, you know, exemplified, as I said, by ChatGPT, the Department of Defense has a task force underway called Task Force Lima uh, that is really studying sort of what are the best use cases for this in the near term and in the long term. Task Force Lima. We had a conversation with Congressman Seth Moulton uh, from his view on the Armed Services Committee. He wrote an op-ed that was chilling about the use of AI in weaponry uh, by the United States and other countries. He was calling for a, a, an AI Geneva Convention knowing that players like Russia uh, are going to seize on this as soon as they can. Do you worry about this getting out of control in terms of an AI arms race? Well, I think the Geneva Convention is actually kind of illustrative as the nature of the problem. Hmm. You know, the Geneva Convention defined the key principles underpinning international humanitarian law and the law of war, stuff like um, proportionality in your response in the use of military force and ensuring that there is military necessity of attacking a target. Well, when you've got the Russian military intentionally bombing hospitals in Ukraine, intentionally bombing civilian infrastructure, they are a signatory to the Geneva Convention and they're openly, willingly violating it in rather cavalier terms. So I think the idea that some kind of convention is going to stop their adoption yeah. of military AI and also to stop their unethical use of military AI, um, the prospects are pretty grim, uh, to be frank. That said, I think there is opportunity among democratically aligned nations, those that share the same values. The United States government has shepherded an initiative around uh, the use of autonomy in weapon systems and codifying sort of what is the code of conduct for what constitutes responsible use. 
Of course, it's possible to use military AI systems in a way that is unethical, but it's also possible to use your fists in a way that is unethical. <laughs> Fair enough. And I think the, the question sort of then becomes, is there a way to actually codify what would constitute ethical behavior? And that's the type of work I was engaged in at the Department of Defense. And now there's more than four dozen countries who are signing up to the to the U.S. view on this topic. Well, it's that's fascinating to hear and encouraging, uh, to be honest, Greg Allen. The knock on this, by the way, is that any attempt to regulate this technology could set back the U.S. as a leader in AI. And this is what lawmakers frequently hear when they bring tech executives to Capitol Hill. Uh, and it makes you wonder if government is going to do this or if it ends up being a self-policing high-tech industry. Well, I think the most advanced regulatory work in the United States is, of course, exemplified by the Biden administration's executive order. Mm -hmm. uh, in the European Union, they just recently passed uh, the European Union's AI Act, which is actually a much broader set of regulations that covers AI in a much more horizontal, cross-cutting fashion. Uh, so they still have to pass that version of that bill in all of the European Union's languages across all 27 countries. But that'll probably take place in April. And then various parts of this law will start entering into force uh, over the next year, two years, three years. You know, we cover political campaigns here uh, day in and day out, Greg, and we're starting to see uh, you mentioned uh, the Joe Biden ad. We're starting to see some of the examples of AI creep into at least that part of campaigning. Some are actually using AI as an organizing tool, but when it comes to, to deep fakes and, and, and trying, to, uh, trying to make uh, a message out of things, I wonder if, if you see that becoming a greater problem between now and the November election. Certainly. And in countries around the world that are having their elections or have already had their elections, such as, for example, uh, Bangladesh, deepfakes have already played a, a reasonably large role in the electoral politics. Of course, if you can generate high quality false audio or false video mm -hmm. uh, of the candidate in question doing something controversial or embarrassing or unethical, um, you can get that now through social media or through other channels in front of a lot of potential voters. And so I think what the U.S. government and what governments around the world are thinking through is what is actually available in the legal and regulatory toolbox uh, to police this types of activity. You know, some types of speech are obviously protected. Um, other yeah. types are not in, yeah. in, in an elections context. And so they're trying to figure out what is the what's available in the regulatory toolbox and what's actually likely to be effective. I'm really glad you could come spend some time with us, Greg Allen, a voice of experience on artificial intelligence in a conversation I hope you'll think about when you hear reports of NVIDIA soaring to all-time highs today. This is the conversation that we're having about this in Washington. He's the director of the Wadwani Center for AI and Advanced Technologies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Greg, thank you. As we bring it to the campaign trail now, we're just a couple days out from the South Carolina primary. I wanted to talk to you, Laura Davison, who is on the ground in South Carolina preparing for what could be a very ugly uh, experience for Nikki Haley in her home state. Laura, it's great to see you. All of the data, all the polling that we've seen so far would suggest that Nikki Haley could lose by anywhere from 20 to 30 points. What's it feel like on the ground? 
you know, that really is is the uh, the message and kind of what you're feeling. Um, obviously, this is Nikki Haley's home state. She served as governor here uh, for two terms, and she is popular. She was very popular as governor and remains to me, but people still want Trump. Um, and you see that reflected in the polling. Uh, that's not necessarily that they dislike Haley, but they just want Trump more. Um, you know, Haley is really fighting here. She's on the airwaves. She's spending lots of money on advertising. She is crisscrossing the state and having a bunch of events. By contrast, you see Trump not even in the state today. He has an event uh, later in Tennessee, which doesn't vote until Super Tuesday. So that really tells you how both candidates are feeling about their chances. Trump, very mm-hmm. confident. Nikki Haley uh, fighting it out. She's making news on in vitro fertilization following this uh, ruling from Alabama's Supreme Court. The headline on our story says it all. Embryos to me are babies. Laura, she's talking about her own personal experience. Is this resonating locally? Yeah, this is, it has been interesting. You know, she has been very nuanced on abortion of, you know, kind of talk, saying that she is, you know, personally pro-life, but doesn't want to judge others who are not. Um, and also you know, making it clear that, you know, some of these uh, bans on the federal level just aren't likely. Um, you know, here in, you know, saying that embryos are babies, she's taking a little bit more of a conservative tack. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also was asked about that later last night and kind of seemed to walk that back and said, you know, look, uh, you know, that 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 she wants uh, parents to be able to do what they can with, uh, you know, uh, in, vitro, in vitro fertilization and the embryos that they create, you know, much like she and her husband were able to do to conceive their children. You mentioned her husband. Uh, Donald Trump's been calling him out. He's deployed in the military overseas. <laughs> Uh, has been calling him out for not being present in the campaign. That that could cut both ways with the number of active military and veterans in South Carolina. Laura, are people talking about it? Yeah, that's something that's gotten um, a, a lot of coverage. Um, and you've seen Nikki Haley really get um, you know uh, emotional in the campaign trail when asked about that. Um, you know, this is a, a very heavily military area. Uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of folks here, but also you see time and time again, you know, no matter who Trump goes out for, people don't ding him. That's part of his brand. You know, whether he's going after people with you know mental disabilities or, or you know gold star families or you know deployed uh, deployed active military members, uh, you know, it doesn't really seem to to rub off on him. That's something. Uh, when are we going to find out? This is going to, I'm guessing, be an early call if we're talking about a 20, 30 point spread here, Laura. Yes, we saw early calls, uh, both Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, you know, polls close in South Carolina uh, at 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern time on Saturday night. And I anticipate uh, we'll be uh, seeing results uh, and perhaps a call very shortly after that. Like at, it's used to 801, maybe, uh, as we saw, to your point, in the two mm-hmm. uh, early states. Is turnout going to be part of this story? Turnout will be part of the story, uh, but it's not really the uh, the, the biggest part. Um, you know, there, there's there will be some potential uh, you know, for things like next week, we'll have Michigan, where you have, again, one of those more open primaries where, mm-hmm. um, you know, Democrats or independents could vote. Um, you know, in South Carolina, it, it, it's really, uh, you know, the, 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 the cake is baked here. Um, and, you know, that may, may be able to be able to make some of the deficit by having more supporters come out or have, um, you know, some Democrats who liked her as governor. Uh, but it, it won't it won't change the game. Wow. The cake is baked. When Laura Davison says that, you know, it's real. Great to see you, Laura. Appreciate your reporting and joining us from South Carolina. We'll stay in touch with Laura uh, as we approach primary day on Saturday, and we'll be able to distill the results for you, of course, on Monday. Laura makes a great point. As soon as we get back to it next week, we're talking about the Michigan primary. That's on Tuesday, and it's Joe Biden we're going to be watching this time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio and TV here on Balance of Power. It is the Thursday edition. I'm Joe Matthew in New York. Kaylee Lyons with me in Washington, D.C., where Kaylee Joe Biden has got to be feeling damned if he does, damned if he doesn't when it comes to the border. We're talking about unilateral executive action, which is exactly what Republicans were calling for following the meltdown of the border deal on the Hill. And apparently the speaker doesn't like it. He's calling it a gimmick. An election year gimmick specifically, considering that, yes, this is a big problem for an incumbent president in an election year, knowing he has to deal with the border issue uh, if he wants to potentially improve his approval on that front. And what were we hearing from congressional Republicans when they were shooting down the deal that Senate negotiators uh, had struck with the White House? It was the idea that the president already had this authority. He had the authority to make changes at the border. He just wasn't using it. And I guess the question is, is he going to be using it now. To help us answer this, Bloomberg's Jordan Fabian is here with me in our Washington, D.C. studios. He, of course, covers the White House for us. So Bloomberg is reporting. We're looking at the Section 212 F powers that were used by former President Trump and now may be used by his uh, Democratic successor. What exactly are these things? What is the president looking to do here? The administration is looking at a few things, trying to make it harder for migrants to claim asylum at the border and trying to sort of stop the flow if crossings get to a certain level. And as you mentioned, it would be quite controversial because those are the same powers the administration is looking at that Donald Trump used to invoke the ban uh, on travelers from mostly majority Muslim countries. Hmm. And you know, it's a difficult balance for Biden. On the one hand, he's certainly moved to the right since 2021 when he promised to take down Donald Trump's immigration agenda because of the situation uh, this year and how politically toxic it is for him. At the same time, he has a lot of voters in his base, Latino voters, progressives, who don't want to see him make moves like this. So he has to balance those priorities here going forward. I should mention that it's not a certainty he does take this executive action. Right now, it's something that's just being considered uh, within the administration. That's important to note because it's already getting reaction out of the Speaker of the House. And I wonder what you make of the pushback here, Jordan. Conservatives have been asking Joe Biden to use executive action uh, to deal with the border here. The Speaker's calling it 
an election year gimmick, as we just said. Is there something further? Is that they want Title 42 back in place? What would make Capitol Hill Republicans happy here? It's an impossible question to answer, Joe. I mean, their stance on this has been totally bizarre. The goalposts keep moving up and down the field. Uh, to summarize uh, uh, Speaker Johnson's position, uh, you can't have legislation because the president can do executive action, and you also can't have executive action because that's an election year gimmick, right. which, by the way, proves that Joe Biden can't be trusted to negotiate legislation. I mean, it's it's like wow. talking in circles here. So uh, you can see why the White House is so frustrated with him because their position is constantly changing. And you know, to your question of what they want, I don't think they know what they want either. They might not want anything. They might want the current situation to remain status quo and use the chaos of the border as a political weapon against Joe Biden and Democrats. Well, but to your point about the, the messaging we've gotten from Republicans in the House, to go back to this idea that they have maintained that the president has this authority and he wasn't using it. If Biden then decides to exercise that authority, isn't he proving their point and could face blowback for just doing so too late? He certainly could. I mean, you can look at it that way. I think you can look at it the other way, which is that he's exhausted all the options and this is sure. what, what he has to do. And, and look, I mean, both sides, I think, have changed their position on this. It should be mentioned the House Republicans, the, one of the first thing they did was pass H.R. 2, which right. was this extremely hardline border bill. And, and so that would suggest that they also believe that legislation was necessary to fix the problem at the border. And and look, you know, I've covered immigration for a long time. A lot of presidents, Joe, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, have taken executive action. What's been proven, it is it's always on stronger legal ground to do legislation because these executive actions get tied up in lawsuits and a lot of them get struck down. So uh, that's, I think, the point that the president was trying to make, that he needs Congress's authority to make these changes permanent and make them real. There we have it from Jordan Fabian. Good to see you, Jordan. Uh, reporting from the White House for Bloomberg every day in Washington. I'm Joe Matthew in New York. Kaylee is, of course, in Washington with Jordan and Mohammed Yunus. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Always, uh, we learn something from Mohammed, the editor-in-chief at Gallup. Kaylee, because we're talking about a number of different angles on Joe Biden right now. It's not just the border. It's also mm -hmm. Israel as he heads for the primary in Michigan next week. Add the economy and we're still looking at underwater approval ratings as actual voters hit the polls. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There is a number of issues, arguably, that are working against the incumbent president, not even to speak of his age, which is something, Joe, that frankly he cannot change. He is an octogenarian, and that is just fact. And the vast majority of voters in consistent polling we are seeing think he is too old to serve another term as president. Granted, there are uh, a number of individuals who also think that former President Trump, the likely Republican nominee, is too old. But that's not something you can fix with policy. That just, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. That's right. As opposed to the economy where you can right. uh, have a policy, and this president likes to call it Bidenomics, as he's adopted that moniker put forth by the Wall Street Journal. And some folks don't think that's a good thing, uh, Kaylee. The consistent disconnect between the economy yeah. and approval ratings and what people think of Joe Biden's handling of the economy uh, has just been an unavoidable story for us here at Bloomberg, and it's likely to carry through the campaign. 
Absolutely. And so let's carry on the conversation now. Joining me in studio here in Washington is Muhammad Yunus, who is the editor-in-chief of Gallup. Muhammad, great to see you as always. Joe and I were both really taken aback to some extent. In both Iowa and New Hampshire, these early Republican primary contests where we were on the ground, finding out that maybe it wasn't the economy stupid as much as it was immigration as voters were going to, to make their selection in the polls. Have we seen the economy now actually trumped in terms of an issue? What does Gallup's polling suggest? Well, historically, and we've had this conversation yeah. before, the economy has been kind of the most potent topic. But it's interesting that you mentioned immigration because in the next coming days, what we're going to be doing is releasing our most important problem um, question that we ask every month. And right now, immigration is the open-ended answer of the most important problem facing America by 28% of Americans. And that is a very significant increase um, just coming up in the last several months. So as the situation at the border gets more critical, um, I think this topic is going to absolutely be coming up time and again. The other point on immigration that's interesting is when we ask people, why do you disapprove of President Biden? One of the most important and frequently mentioned subjects is in fact immigration, second, second to which only is how he's managing the economy. Yeah. So both the economy and immigration, I think, are going to be really critical for Americans. They have been in the past, um, less immigration, but I think what's happening right now is pretty um, consistent. And also other data points show that more Americans beyond just folks who are traditionally concerned about immigration are growing more concerned about the situation right now. Yeah. Um, another data point we'll be releasing soon is that r right now, a majority of Americans, I, I believe it's 55% of those that are dissatisfied with the state of immigration in the country want to see less people coming into the country. And that's also a relative high when you look at the past, you know, several years to a decade. So immigration is absolutely per perking up as a more potent subject for people um, as they think about this election. Well, for voters who are going to be making their decisions based on the economy, uh, Mohammed, it's not looking good for Joe Biden. As you wrote recently, political economic indicators not promising for the president, sub 50% presidential job ratings have usually resulted in electoral defeat. So what are we talking about here? Um, President Biden right now, looking at historical metrics, and uh, my colleague Jeff Jones did a great run-up of all of the really important five to six metrics that we've looked at with previous presidents at similar moments in their presidency seeking re-election. Mm -hmm. He's behind almost every single one of them on every single metric. Um, with the exception of President Carter on some of them, hmm. he definitely is behind. And I think that's a really important thing to realize and, and keep in the forefront of our minds um, as we look to November. However, um, we're also seeing now the third month of continued improve, improvement in Americans' um, economic confidence in the situation with the economy here at home. So our economic confidence index asks Americans to think about the economy right now and where they think it's going, essentially. And this will be the third month uh, where we've seen an improvement. So that's moving in the right direction. But a lot of these other traditional historic metrics um, are not promising for President Biden. His three-year average at 39.8% um, has him behind everybody but Carter at this point in their presidency. And that number now we're going to release later this afternoon will be 38 which wow. is our new number that actually isn't uh, published yet. But when we come out with that, that means that he's now almost two points below his own three-year average at this point hmm. in the campaign. 
So it raises the question of what he is going to be able to campaign on or to, to try to do to improve his image, what issues can work in his favor. Favor, And I want to ask you about abortion specifically because we know that has uh, t- resulted in a very high voter turnout and Democratic victories in the midterms and in some other special elections across a number of states. And of course, we've seen just within the last week in Alabama, the Supreme Court there ruling that an embryo is a child, a life that must be protective protected, calling into question IVF treatments, fertility treatments that even conservatives have been very public about supporting broadly uh, this kind of fertility treatment is supportive. How, How do you think that may serve as a catalyst come this November when we're even further out from the overturning of Roe versus Wade and yet you're still feeling uh, the effects with new developments like this one? It's interesting that uh, this is a topic now that will be implicated into the public conscience really through local decision making, right? Because mm-hmm. that's where a lot of these things happen as the, as the situation you just mentioned. Overall, what we found in our decades old trends, after the Dobbs decision, America has increasingly become slightly, not dramatically, but more identifying more as pro-choice. And those who are experiencing dissatisfaction with the state of abortion laws want to see less, not more restrictive laws in the country. Um, you know, Roe v. Wade was in an interesting case in that over six in 10 Americans didn't want it to, didn't want to see it overturned. Mm-hmm. So it was by nature a, a uniquely unpopular decision. Um, what's interesting is that since then, what we've seen is a slight cooling of those temperaments. So for example, um, people identifying as pro-choice, it was 55%. Uh, last year, it's down to 52% this year. So it's the, that cooling you see consistently across those metrics. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is that people who identify as pro-life are also on the uptick now. So we're yeah. kind of in a recalibration moment in terms of public opinion, reacting to the Roe v. Wade uh, overthrow. But again, the more that these state decisions bring this topic back into focus, the more the significant, now 28% um, of Americans that say that the candidate they vote for has to share their views, and that's increased dramatic, notably since Roe v. Wade. Those voters are going to be mobilized uh, by that national focus, and it's going to show in their vote. Pretty incredible to think about it, uh, but the State of the Union address is two weeks from tonight. <laughs> Mohammed, in our remaining moment here, based on your metrics, when the president says the State of the Union is strong, will a majority of Americans not believe him? Um, I, well, most Americans have been dissatisfied with the state of affairs in the United States now for a, quite a long time, for years, uh, and that predates President Biden. So I think that's going to be a hard sell just for the average public. Um, what's really going to be interesting politically is how many of the folks that consider themselves to be independents will be drawn by um, his argument and to what degree outcome or really turnout is going to determine uh, how this election ultimately goes, as, as with all elections. But most Americans are pretty negative on the state of national politics and national policy on many fronts, immigration, abortion. I mean, it breaks on each side. But um, I, I don't think just one speech is going to get that mm-hmm. done. <laughs> We're always smarter for some time with Mohammed Yunus. Great to see you, Mohammed. Thanks for coming by our Washington Bureau. As always, the editor-in-chief at Gallup. I'm Joe Matthew in New York. Kaylee Lines in D.C. We assemble our panel next for their take on what we're talking about here. Lester Munson and Pat Dennis are on the way in. This is Bloomberg. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Welcome back to Balance of Power on both Bloomberg Television and Radio, where we always have our eyes on the polls on this program as we get closer and closer to not just the upcoming primary contest in South Carolina, but ultimately what's looking likely to be a general election matchup between Trump and Biden come November. And yet, Joe, we also have to consider who else might be mm-hmm. on the ballot come November, because a new Quinnipiac poll that came out yesterday showed if it's Biden, Trump, Biden wins 49 to 45. When you add third parties into the mix, yeah. Guess who gets 15%? Uh-huh. This is fascinating to me. RFK Jr. Uh, Kaylee, we've been hearing Democrats and many of them on this program uh, gnash teeth, ring hands over the mm-hmm. idea of a no-labels candidate. And we could still get one, presumably, after Super Tuesday. But much less chatter about this man at 15%. I don't know if you're reading into these polls uh, to the extent that that we should be here on a, a national poll this early on, but that's a that's a real number, Kaylee, and it would put him on stage, yeah. I believe, in a general election debate, which is something to consider at this point. That's where we want to start with our panel. Lester Munson is with us, Republican strategist, BGR Group, alongside Pat Dennis, Democratic strategist. He's the president of American Bridge. Pat, of all the things that keep you up at night, is it no labels or our RFK Jr. that could provide the real nightmare? <laughs> It's absolutely both of them. Uh, To be clear, lots of things keep me up at night, but they both come (laughs) back down to this fundamental Trump (laughs) math problem, which is he can't win unless he has he's able to divide the anti-Trump coalition. And, you know, at American Bridge, we've been digging through RFK's uh, financial filings, and it's no like surprise that one of the biggest donors to Donald Trump is also the biggest donor to RFK Super PAC. So it is a real worry for us. It's something we're taking extremely seriously. But sort of the the nice thing about RFK is 
voters who don't know anything about him tend to be the ones who have uh, who support him. The second they learn anything about his positions, his personality, the things he's done, uh, they they flee um, the RFK train pretty quickly. So that's really what we're focused mm -hmm. on is making sure people are aware of his uh, extreme positions. Well, Lester, it raises the question if people are just polling and saying, OK, yeah, I vote for that guy because he's just the alternative that's there on the piece of paper or on the list of options that isn't Trump or Biden. Yeah, uh, I, I have to say I find uh, Mr. Kennedy to be a little strange and some of his positions to be a little bit out there. Uh, and I think his success uh, is largely due to the fact that the incumbent is so weak uh, and people are looking for alternatives. Uh, Mr. Kennedy, I think, what is it, age 72, seems to have some youthful vigor compared to the other candidates. Maybe that's a big factor here. Well, he's out there doing push-ups in the street uh, for, you know, social media videos. Pat, is that what's in store for Joe Biden here? More more topless days on the beach? How does he deal with the age issue? <laughs> I mean, the real contrast to make here is whether or not you're a serious politician or not. And with RFK, like we've seen his absolutely disgusting positions on vaccines, really spreading dangerous misinformation that the vast majority of the country absolutely rejects. Uh, and then, you know, it's just a grab bag of positions across the board that people um, sort of loathe. So, yeah, he wants this to be a, a campaign about, you know, Instagram posts or whatever, but ultimately he has to run against an actual president who's solving problems for people. Well, let's talk about the actual president, because we were just having a conversation uh, in our prior segment about what he could do when it comes to the border, Pat. He's talking about, or at least the administration is considering executive action that would bring about similar policies, if not the same, as what we saw in the Trump administration. And this is a Democratic president who came into office singing a very different tune on immigration and the border issue than he is singing now. Is this just political reality for him? And how's it going to go down with his party? Well, I think the important thing to know here is that the problem with the Muslim ban wasn't which section of law he used. The problem was it was an unconstitutional, racist, xenophobic policy that was completely illegal and disgusting and immoral. Now, actually using the laws of the United States, as he's been forced to do by having an intransigent Republican Party who refuses to sign legislation, the American people support using the laws that are on the books in a way that is ethical and responsible and all the things, you know, bipartisan that Joe Biden has shown he's so good at over the years. I want to ask you both about what's going on in Michigan. Uh, this is going to be interesting as we all obsess over South Carolina and it appears to be a predetermined outcome here in favor of Donald Trump. Joe Biden's kind of worried about what goes on in Michigan. He's dispatched high-level officials from the administration to go to that state to talk to Arab leaders, uh, Arab-American voters who helped to deliver a win in Michigan for Joe Biden in 2020. Rashida Tlaib is now behind this uncommitted vote next week, encouraging Democrats to not vote for the incumbent here. Uh, Pat, how much of a problem does he have in Michigan? What's this going to look like on Tuesday? Well, you know, the Democratic Party, we're a, a big, happy family. And if that's anything like my family, sometimes yeah. you throw a plate of food across the table at Thanksgiving. But, you know, everybody comes back to play poker afterwards, at least if you're uh, you're in my family. So Sounds like a fun look, family. Donald Trump is just. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Donald Trump is just 
too dangerous. Um, we will come together in November to defeat him. And look, Joe Biden's doing the right thing. You need to take states like Michigan seriously. You know, at American Bridge, this sort of the core of our program is focused on states like Michigan, also Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, because they're really going to decide the election. Mm hmm. Well, it makes me wonder, Lester, also, as we talk about voters who may be more reluctant to vote for Biden, does that make them more likely to vote for Trump? Is that really the the point to point thing we should be drawing? Or is it just that this is going to be a turnout problem at the end of the day? You know, so far, it looks a lot like a turnout election. We're, we're only in February, though, and no one's voting in the general election in February. There's primaries going on as much as mm -hmm. the Democrats tried to avoid having one at all, uh, they're having to go through that process also. Once I, I presume at some point here in the summer, once we pivot to the to the conventions and the actual general election, that these candidates, uh, Mr. Biden and presumably Mr. Trump, although maybe Ambassador Haley, uh, will make a case to those independent swing voters. I sure would like to see that. Uh, the the conundrum for the for the president in Michigan is very telling. His foreign policy is not what he's talking about to a lot of audiences in, in the United States. He is basically supporting the Israeli government in their actions in Gaza, which by the way, I think is the right thing to do. That's not what he's saying back home. He's trying to kind of have his cake and eat it too here. I think people are seeing through that and they're a little skeptical about what they're hearing. Pat, I'm curious what you think about the primary itself. I know you see Democrats winning Michigan, although it was only by 150, 155,000 votes in 2020, with the vast majority of the state's 200,000 Muslim voters uh, going for Biden. But is there a margin he needs to worry about if that uncommitted vote reaches a certain level? Does that send a message that makes his life more difficult next week? Well, at American Bridge, we think about Michigan pretty much every day. Um, <laughs> primaries are primaries. Uh, it's extremely it's extremely important that we win this in November. And the what Joe Biden is doing, you know, sending people focusing on the state, focusing on jobs in the audio industry, focusing on infrastructure. This is all the stuff that's going to win it for him. Now, you know, this is uh, a primary we're in February need I keep reminding people uh, we're very early in the campaign but ultimately um, you know you need to run the campaign and you need to you need to come in strong well it's early and at this early stage we do see that the president has a very large war chest once the January figures came in Lester we learned he had raised $42 million he was now sitting on a pile of about $130 million whereas for the Trump campaign, they spent more than they raised, and we saw millions of dollars going out the door once again to pay for legal fees. As we talk about how it's going to require real investment in states, swing states like Michigan, how much at the end of the day is this going to come to who has the most money in the bank? It's going to be a big factor, and I think there's no doubt the Democrats are going to be in a much more advantageous position when it comes to raising massive amounts of campaign funds. And the, and the Trump campaign, let's face it, has a problem with legal fees. And a lot of that, the money that's being raised is going straight into his legal fees, which makes the case for Nikki Haley so much better. She doesn't have to worry about that. She can spend money on actually trying to okay. persuade voters. So that kind of gets you pretty quickly to who's going to win the free uh, advertising battle. Who can go get free media? Uh, former President Trump, is, uh, if, if in, indeed he's the nominee, has demonstrated he can do that pretty well, whether he's sitting in a courtroom or doing a press conference right outside the courtroom. 
Uh, and the president, for some reason, is not taking advantage of free media opportunities. He skipped his opportunity to do an interview at the Super Bowl. He hasn't been out there very much. And when he does get out there, uh, it doesn't go super well for him. So I think he needs to address that issue if he's going to be uh, as competitive as he can be in the general election. All right. Lester Munson of BGR Group and Pat Dennis of American Bridge. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.